a hard look at our operations and our structure and um, uh, bring in some men into that. And we're looking at um, possible new elders and deacons moving forward. Um, we're super blessed to have a couple uh, brothers from sister churches coming in. Um, we've asked Chris Tulare to come back with us today. Um, and another brother that's going to be here with us next week. And uh, just allow us the focus to look at um, the things that we need to look at tonight at 4 o'clock. Be in prayer for us. Uh, but this is a brother, again, um, from Gospel Church, um, who's been faithful, has a heart for Bayfield, has a heart for God's Word. And, um, and again, even though you never do this for me or Tyler or anybody else that preaches here, can you actually, just this one time, welcome Chris as he comes and shares God's Word with us? Good. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be back. Um, so I just wanted to share a little bit with you, um, uh, just kind of what Colby alluded to. So uh, for you know, almost six years, I pastored a gospel church here in Bayfield. We met downtown, and we met in the Senior Adult Center, and we kind of were wherever we could go, um, wherever, wherever we could find a place. And uh, we... We, yeah, we, we were here uh, ministering for, for almost six years this past, um, right after Easter this last year. Uh, we had decided that it was, it was time for us to not meet together anymore. Because of what Colby mentioned earlier about the missions, um, is that we didn't have enough pastors. And so it's easy when you as a church say, oh, we only need one. Okay, we, but, but like you guys, we believe that you need a plurality of elders, like multiple pastors to be able to look after one another so you don't just have one guy making all the decisions because that can get dangerous. And so we, um, we had multiple pastors, uh, and, and one of them moved back home to Louisiana. And for almost two years, we were seeking the Lord, and we were praying, and we were asking, Lord, bring, please bring somebody else. Bring somebody who can come. Bring somebody who's qualified. Um, and the Lord just never did that. And so we were, we tried and we tried and we tried. And ultimately I've had lots of people ask me, what happened? Did you guys run out of money? Did people stop coming? We ran out of leaders, right? We we ran out of pastors and it was hard for us to, to make that decision. Um, but I got to say something. One of the reasons that we closed down because we were really hesitant. We didn't know if it was the right time. How long do you wait? You know, how, how long is too long to wait? We wanted to be obedient to God. We, we, we know the Bible says plurality of elders. We need multiple pastors. How long do we wait for God to send somebody else to us? Um, and the, one of the reasons that we were okay with closing our doors was because of First Baptist Bayfield. Not because you guys did anything to us, but in fact, because you guys encouraged us. But because we knew that if we walked away, if we were no longer meeting at church anymore, that there was still a really good, solid, Bible-believing church, a man in the pulpit who doesn't pull punches, right? Um, that existed even if we decided that it was time to walk away. Um, and I say that, I wouldn't be really careful here, because what I don't want to do is badmouth other churches, right, in, in our town, but... The, the honest truth is, is that there are a lot of churches just in this little town of Bayfield who, who are pulling those punches, right? Who are not preaching the entire counsel of God, who are saying things that are not biblical, saying things like if you pray to God and, and if you're faithful to him and if you have enough faith, he will heal you. Or if you have enough faith, he's going to bless your bank account. Like that is not biblical. And there are churches in this town who are teaching that. 
But you guys are standing strong against those things. You guys are standing strong in the Bible. And so when Colby asked me if I would come back, I thought, ah, oh, maybe I'll just preach out of Daniel 2. And it's not often, right? Because last week I preached in Daniel 1. I thought, oh, that'd be good. We'll just continue on in that. But it's not often that the Lord just like really strongly and quickly and decisively says to me, no, don't do that. Because I was here last week and I heard some, you know, people talking to me and just from the stage. And it's clear that you guys are going through a struggle. And I don't know what it is, and that's okay. And I'm not asking for details. But what I want to do this morning is I want to follow God's leading. And God led me to a place where he said, look, you need to go in and encourage that church and challenge them. That whatever struggle it is that you guys are facing, that the Lord has something really important to say to you on how you overcome this, Right? Because if you, I don't want to say if you don't, because I know that you're going to, right? I, I know that the Lord is leading you guys, and I know that you're going to come out of this on the other side stronger than you were. But I think that the issue needs to be made really clear. You guys are, are kind of it, right? You're the only church standing strong in this town that is preaching the whole counsel of God, that is preaching what is true and what is good week in and week out. It's vitally important that you guys come together. And, and, and overcome this challenge together and work together on this. And that's what James tells us, right? That's what we're going to read this morning. That's what we're going to study is that James says we need to count all strife and all trials as joy, but we do it as brethren. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So we're just reading a couple of verses, right? Two through four. But almost every single word here is important. Colby sort of made a joke this morning when we were meeting, and he said, the shorter the, the, shorter the passage, the longer the sermon, right? These, every word, this is, there's so much in just these three verses that we need to look at. And we're going to look at kind of word by word because every one of them is important. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So let's just start right at the beginning here. Count it all as joy. This is not a suggestion, right? This is a command from God, writing through James, right? This, and this is not our natural reaction when we come up against a trial, God is appealing to our intellect. He is telling us, you have to make a choice to count it as joy, right? That's what it means to count something. If we allowed our human instinct to take over, we'd get sad or depressed or whatever. God, why me? Why are you doing this to me? Why now? Why not somebody else? Do you love me? We, we would go into this sort of spiral of emotion. And if emotion leads us, when we face a trial... We're going to be questioning God and not be looking for joy. So James commands us to consider our trials as joy. God is not appealing to our emotion. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why I am so skeptical of sort of the emotion-led church or religious idea. We're just, going to, we're just going to feel our way to God. If you feel your way to God, you disobey this commandment every single time. Because your emotions will tell you Get sad. Get depressed. But God is telling us something very different. He's telling us to count these trials as joy. 
Now, James is not alone in this. Just flip over, right? First, James, or First Peter, I mean, is the, is the very next book in your Bible. Look at it. First Peter 1, 5 to 7, says this. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by your various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, faith more precious than gold, um, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans with me. Paul echoes the same idea, Romans 5, 2 to 4. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope for the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James is not alone in this call for joy in the midst of our trials. But we have to make the choice, right? We have to make a cognitive choice. We have to decide that we are going to seek it that we are going to, and that we are going to find it. And this is not an act, right? We don't, we don't have to run around like with a smile on our face and laughing and, and happy when tragedy has struck us or our family. That's not what joy is. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy is something far different than that, Right? It's a deeper feeling that even when you are grieving, like Peter says, we grieve the things that we have lost. We are still bringing glory to God. We still know that God loves us even in the midst of that grief. Joy is something far deeper. It's far more lasting, long-lasting than happiness. It's that we never, we, we don't question God's love for us. It's that we know that he is there even in our darkest moments. We know that God is there and that he's loving us. But on the other side, you see, we, can't, we shouldn't act happy, but at the same time, we shouldn't act as if the joy is there when it's not. That's not just something that we say. You go to a funeral for a loved one, and, well, I have, the, I have the joy of God in me. Don't, don't just say that to people because you think, well, that's what I'm supposed to say, right? The Bible tells me to have joy. I'm just going to tell people I have joy. Like, we genuinely should be seeking it. We should genuinely want to be joyful in the midst of a trial that we are facing. So if the joy is not real, what do we, we, when we are lacking in something, we go to the Lord and we ask him, Lord, fill my heart with joy. I don't feel like having it right now. Things are not going the way that I had hoped they would. But Lord, I'm asking that you would bring a supernatural level of joy into my heart. It usually starts with an attitude, something similar to this. I don't know what God is trying to teach me, right? I don't know what he's doing just yet in the midst of this tragedy. But I'm open to it and I'm excited for it even. I want to know what God is going to teach me on the other end of this. I want to know what he has to say. I'm mourning what's been lost, but at the same time I'm ready to see, receive whatever God has for me. 
Right? You see how that, that, that's what the joy looks like in the midst of a trial, in the midst of suffering. It's different than that happiness. I don't know if Colby does this, but like with the Mormons next door, I don't know how you guys don't pick on them every week, right? Like that's what I think of when I think of Mormons, like this sort of fakeness. Like every time a Mormon comes to my door, they just seem happy to come and rake my leaves. Like you're not happy, man. I know you're not. You're doing this because you think like that's how you get to heaven. We, like, we recognize that in other people. We say like, don't be fake with me. Like you, you just lost a family. You don't have to laugh and smile. It's okay to be sad and it's okay to grieve. That's not what we're talking about. And so we want to be genuine with what is going on in our hearts and in our lives, right? But to... To be stripped of the joy means to be stripped of our understanding of who God is and God's love for us all the time. So that joy needs to come through. So that's the first thing. In the midst of our trials, we count the hardship as joy. The second thing to do is that we do it together. As brethren, right? This is what, I mean, throughout the book of James, he just over and over and over again says, my brothers, my brethren, he makes an extremely, he goes to extremes to make this point. We are one. We are one body in Christ, and we are in this together. He starts his book off this way, appealing to his listeners as his brothers in Christ. You see, the, the struggles that you face as individuals, you were never meant to face them as individuals. You're meant to face them together with the church, with your brothers and sisters. Every time you go through a trial, whether it be with your family or with at work or as a church, you are meant to do this and you are meant to lean on your fellow Christians. Now, I know that you, we have all heard that many, many times throughout our life, and this is more than a cliche. If your marriage is struggling, you should go to somebody in this church and say, I need you to watch my kids all weekend long, because my spouse and I, we need to go somewhere, and we need to deal with this, and we need to heal together. And when somebody comes to you and asks you that, it doesn't, doesn't matter how much you don't want to watch their kids all weekend. You better do it, right? You better say, of course we will. Of course, you bring them over. Let them, they can stay as long as you need them to. Go and do what you need to do. Because that's what it means to lean on one another. It's not just, later in the book, James will say, look, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, man, I'm hungry and I need food, and you pray for them and you don't give them food, you failed, Right? It's not enough that we would just come together and pray for one another. When somebody has a need, there's, there's oftentimes, like, it's not just about prayer, right? That's a very important thing, but that we have to meet those needs for one another. That's what it means to come together as brothers. We meet the needs of each other. So if you're drowning in debt, if you're struggling with a huge life decision, if you need advice or if you need something physical, you should go to the people in this church. Go to the people in your small group. Ask them specifically. Because here's the thing. What good is your pride if you're like, you're, you're saying, oh, I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I can't ask somebody for money. Who cares? Right? These are the people who are, who are the most invested in your life. Lay all that other junk aside, Right? Be real with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask for what you need. And here's the thing. When somebody asks you, it's almost assuredly going to require a sacrifice on your part, right? If, you're, if they're asking you for help, 
You're going to have to make a sacrifice. Their trial becomes your trial, and that's what it's supposed to be. You're supposed to take on the trials of, of your brothers and sisters, and it's supposed to become part of your world to the point where you want to see it accomplished, and you want to see it resolved just as much as they do. If this is going to happen, we can't be at odds with one another, right? There can't be bickering. There can't be infighting within the church. Like, we are one body. I wish that I had the words of Spurgeon. I mean, this guy. If you guys have never read stuff from Charles Spurgeon, my gracious. Listen to this. This is what he says. Everyone that is born of the Spirit of God is brother to every other that is born of the same Spirit. Well, maybe we be called brethren, for we are redeemed by one blood. We are partakers. We are partakers of the same life. We p- feed upon the very same heavenly food. We are united to the same living head. We seek the same ends. We love the same Father. We are heirs of the same promise, and we shall je- dwell forever together in the same heaven. Wherefore, let brotherly love continue. Let us love one another with a pure heart, fervently, and manifest that love, not only in word, but in deed and in truth. People talk about, I go back in history and meet this guy, and I go back and listen to Charles Spurgeon. My gracious, this man, like, nobody could write it better than that. I don't think, like, this is what we are called to, right? We serve the same God. Galatians 6.2 says this, bearing one another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ. It doesn't get much more simple than that. This is what God is calling us to. Count your, count your trials as joy and do it together as brothers. Why do we do this? We're following in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. We, we can't do it the way he did it. We can try, but what did the burden that Jesus took? Just imagine if you tried to take just the sins of every single person just in this room, the crushing guilt and horror and grief that would come just from, just from what do we get, 70 people? I don't, however many people are in this room, just you trying to take the guilt and sin of just everybody in this room would destroy you. He took the sins of the entire world. He took on a burden that we could never imagine. And he took it on his shoulders. And he said, look, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve any of that. We don't deserve to have our sins dumped onto him. But he took it anyway. He took a burden far greater than anything we could ever imagine. And we have been saved because of that, right? Because Jesus took that sin And it was crucified with him on the cross. Our sins were killed, destroyed, annihilated with Christ on the cross. And he comes back to life in three days. And then not only that, but he offers that life to us too. He offers to take our burden and then he offers his life resurrected to us. How could we ever consider saying no to a brother who comes to us? Says, hey man, I need you. I need help. Can you pay a bill for me? Can you take my kids for a couple of days? Can you do this? And we, if that indifference rises up in your gut, and you're like, ah, let him handle that. That's his problem. I got my own problems. You, kill that immediately. How dare you? How dare I ever look at a brother and think, ah, I don't have time for you. 
I don't have the resources to help you out. We can't take that stance. No matter what it costs us, no matter what sacrifice we have to do, we have to be there to bear the burden of our brother. And if you feel... How many of you have ever read uh, The Great Divorce? C.S. Lewis is like my favorite. And there's this, there's this sort of conversation that happens where there, there's a guy and he's got this, it's almost like, I don't know if this is where it came from, sort of in the cartoons, but he has the little devil on his shoulder, right? Um, and the angel comes up to him and says, hey, what's that, what's this thing happening on your shoulder? He's like, oh, you know, this is, and obviously I'm not doing this justice by any means, but the idea is this is sort of his sin and it's living on his shoulder and it's like whispering things in his ear and the angel's like, hey, let, let, me, let me get rid of that for you. Let me kill that. Let me squash it. And the guy's like, no, 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 it's fine. I'll just tell him to be quiet. He'll stop. He'll be fine. He'll go around behind. You won't be able to see him anymore. Maybe I can put him in my pocket. or Like, let me, let me just hide him away. And the angel over and over again says, no, we have to kill that thing, right? I know the temptation to say, ah, I don't have time. I don't have the resources. I don't have the money. I don't have what it takes to help this brother. I'm telling you right now, that's what you have to do. You can't just be like, maybe the next guy. Like, I can't do it now, but maybe the next guy. Don't let that live at all. Kill it the moment that it comes up in you, right? Because there's going to be a day when you need to then turn to that same brother and say, I need your help. I need you to pay one of my bills, or I need you to take my kids for the weekend. And we don't do it so that somebody will owe us something, but because that's how the body is supposed to function. We have to help with each other, right? We have to lean on one another. As Paul said in Galatians once again, this fulfills the law of Christ when we take on one another's burdens. Third thing, he tells us to do this when we meet a trial, what does it mean to meet a trial, right? How many of you know the person who's looking for the trials? They're out there. I'm going to find some reason to complain today, right? That was my grandmother. I loved her to death, but my gracious, she just, every day, all day long, she found something to complain about all day, every day. Like, that's not meeting a trial. That's finding them, right? Well, I'm going to look for something to call. And then she would call my mom, and my mom, poor mom, she's listening to this. It, it, that's, she was like the epitome of like, I'm going to find something to make my life more miserable and to make my life, you know, more difficult. That's not what we're being called to do. We're being called to meet it. So we don't go looking for it, but we're also not allowed to run away from it when it meets us, right? When we come up against a problem or a struggle in our life, we can just be like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm out. We're called to meet it. This reminds me of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob, my gracious, that guy. He was, he was like the epitome of not meeting the trial. Like he would do everything that he could to find a way to sneak his way around it. He wants Esau's birthright. He tricks him. He wants Esau's blessing. He tricks his dad. And then it sort of comes back on him, right? Laban tricks him into marrying Leah when he thinks he's marrying Rachel. And so then what does Jacob do? He tricks Laban and steals half his sheep. And it's just like his life is defined by this. It's what he does. He just runs around. Something comes up, a hard thing comes up. He's like, well, I'm not going to face that head on. I'm going to go around this way and I'm going to come around behind and I'm going to find a way to sneak my way past it 
And that's what children do, right? They, our, our kids, they, they, when we catch them doing something and you say, hey, what, stop, are you trying to get a coat? No, no, I'm not doing that, right? And they're, they're, they're going to try and find any way around it. Part of what it means to be an adult is to face our trials, but we know many adults who don't do this, right? And that's why part of what it means to be a Christian is to face our trials and to be honest. And you know, I don't know if you, if, if you find the gospel in the Old Testament very often, but it's there and it's everywhere. And in Jacob's life, it is pronounced. Because Jacob, he's done all the tricking, right? He's gained a bunch of stuff. And what happens? Esau finds him. He's, they're older men. And he gets this report. Hey, Esau's on his way. And he's here to see you. Now, if you were Jacob, what are you thinking? Uh-oh, this is bad. What kind of trick can I pull this time to get away from my brother who I stole everything from and he's probably coming to kill me? And Jacob is still doing it, right? He's still tricking and he's still trying to find a way. And then we have this famous scene, right, in the Old Testament. Jacob wrestles with God. And he loses, right? Well, he wins sort of, but then God's like, and he pops his hip out and he's face first on the ground. He thinks he wins, but he doesn't, right? He doesn't win. And God knocks him face down. And he is grabbing on to God's heel. And what is, ah, oh, this is, if you've never, uh, this is one of my favorite Old Testament gospel explanations, pictures of the gospel. God looks down at him and he says, what is your name? Not because God forgot who he was, but because Jacob's name means heel grabber right Jacob's name means that he is a con man that he's a trickster and Jacob looks back up at him and he has no choice I'm Jacob that's who I am I'm a heel grabbing con artist I'll do anything I can to get ahead I will cheat and steal and do and God looks back down at him and this is the gospel ladies and gentlemen that's us we're face down and we're a a no good piece of junk and God looks down at us and says who are you and we say that's me I'm a sinner I'm a bad person and God looks down and says no more that's how we are saved nothing that we do but God looks at him and says you are no longer that now you are this you are something completely different he gives him a new name and he gives him a new identity and what is the first thing that Israel does when he stands up from that he goes face to face with his brother and he meets him and he meets the trial why because he knows that he has God with him right and if Esau is going to kill him so be it he finally understands what it means to be a man following after God he meets his trial because he knows that he has God in his corner and no matter what happens no matter if he dies that very day He's still a man who is following after God. And ultimately, guys, no matter what trial can come into your life, God is in your corner. And no matter what the outcome of it is, because here's the thing, there's going to be a trial and one day that's going to be the thing that kills you, right? None of us are going to escape that. We all know that it's coming. You can't, you can't wiggle your way out of everything. You can't weasel your way or ignore trials to the point and just live forever. That's not how it works. One day we are all going to, to face God Right? And we know that if we have been saved, that he is going to welcome us into that kingdom. So we are called to do the same, right? We are called to face our trials, not run away from them. And that means that we have to be totally honest. Right? To lie about any portion of it. To try and shift blame and say, well, I didn't do this. This is not my fault. This is happening to me and I did nothing... I, 
there are times in our lives when trials come and it is purely, we did nothing to deserve that, right? But, you know, I, I'm a chaplain in the hospital and quite regularly I meet people who, you know, had a, had a heart attack or about to have surgery and this, why would the Lord do this to me? Why would the Lord, you know, I'm, I'm young and my heart's given out and what's to do? And I'm like, yeah, but five minutes ago when you were telling me about your life and how you lived on the road and you ate McDonald's three times a week, like, that, that may have contributed a little bit to the fact that you're, like, having heart trouble right now. Like, we, we have to be willing to own the part of the trial that we brought upon ourselves. It requires that we take hard look at the situation. Where am, I, where am I to blame? Where am I to fault? Right? What, what, what part of this do I need to seek forgiveness from other people about? Right? Because there's things that are happening, and they're my fault, and I did something, or I said something. And then there are parts of a trial where you think, I didn't do anything. And so you, you go and you, you try and get the forgiveness of someone else. Right? Or you're, you're, you ask somebody else, like, hey, you have, you've hurt me in this. And so both things can be true at the same time. And this is why I think James says that there's various forms of trials, right? Some of them we bring upon ourselves. Some of them just come. We would be remiss to not think about Job when we think about a trial, right? I mean, when we read the book of Job, it seems clear that he didn't do anything to bring all that upon him. Satan is doing it. And God is saying, he's going to praise my name. He's going to stand strong. And so we face these trials and we do it honestly. Where we are to blame, we admit that. We ask for forgiveness from anyone we have harmed. Third thing, we count it as joy because we know the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. You see, God's not asking us to find this joy, this unnatural joy that is not part of our human nature, just to see if we will, right? There's a reason. It produces steadfastness. Now, if it didn't produce anything, and God told us to find the joy, we should still try and find it. But guess what? That, that's not... It, that's not how God operates. He didn't just do something or say something just to see if we're going to be obedient. There's a reason for it because God is orderly, right? He doesn't always give us his reason. But when he asks us to do something, there's usually a good reason. And thankfully, he tells us what the reason is here, right? The reason is that it's going to produce steadfastness in you. Like we talked about last week in Daniel, our faith is being built day by day. And small tests of faith, so is it with our steadfastness, right? Day by day, we are, being, we are facing small trials in order that our steadfastness, our faith, would grow stronger and stronger. See, it's, it's far more rare to find somebody who has been trusting in Christ for 50 years and have them complain about the things that are going wrong in their life. Most of the time, those folks are like, I've been through this before, more than once. I've seen God's providence. I've seen him step in and be there and, and be a calming and, and, and good presence and loving presence in my life. And I'm not worried about this new trial because I've been through it a hundred times. It's kind of, I mean, it's the exact same thing when you think about working out your muscles, right? The more you do it, the stronger you're going to get. 
But if you are relaxed with it, if you, if, if you don't go to the gym for five years, it's not going to just magically stay strong. The steadfastness that we are looking for through our life is something that we have to deal with regularly. When a trial comes, we have to trust in the Lord no matter what. We have to find joy no matter what. And when the next one comes, we can't be like, oh, yeah, I beat the last one, so I think I'm good. I don't have to keep doing that. I just This one I can be mad about, and I can grump around the house. No, like this one you find joy in, and then when the next one comes, you find joy in that one, and when the next one comes, you find joy in that one again and again, over and over and over again. These are choices that we have to make, right? We're finding joy. We're choosing to find joy over and over again. And that steadfastness will build within us. And guess what? After you face a hundred of them, and you're faithful in a hundred of them, and you find joy in a hundred of them, the next one that comes, a lot of the time, you, you might not even notice that it has hit you. Like, oh yeah, that didn't quite go the way I thought it was going to. You see, what is steadfastness other than you are the same today as you are tomorrow? If everything is going really well for you today, and you're praising the Lord, and you're, you're shouting the joys of his love and his forgiveness, and tomorrow your house burns down, are you still praising God, shouting the love and forgiveness and the goodness of who God is? You only can do that if you have spent years Beating the little trials, finding joy in the little trials so that when the big trials come along, you still say, God is good no matter what happens in my life. You'll notice that your house burned down, right? But it's not going to shake your foundation of who God is and does he love me and is he still there and is he paying attention? In short, everything that we knew to be true when life was good, we still know to be true when things are falling down around us. And that's what we believe in. And that's what we are trusting in. We are completely unaffected by the things that are going on. I know a few of you pretty well. Um, and many of you know, um, the, the, at least those of you who I kind of have known for years. Uh, like I'm going through probably one of the hardest trials of my life that I was not expecting to go through at the age of 37, and that is that my dad has terminal dementia, and it is like this rare form, and it's killing him, and it's killing him super fast. Like, a year ago, he was fairly normal, and most of the doctors are thinking by the end of this year, like, he, he'll be gone. And I just expect, oh, my dad's going to live into his 70s or 80s, like everybody expects their dad to do, right? And at 65, like, he's, he's facing death, um, um, and I've, I've grieved over this, over losing him, because I've basically, like, I've basically already lost him. His mind is gone. He's not able, he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't recognize me. He barely recognizes my mom anymore. And it's, it's, been, it's been an extremely difficult um, thing to go through. And at the same time, People ask me about him, how's your dad doing? You know, every so often, maybe once a week, somebody will, will bring it up and say, you know, how are things going? And at first, I was like a little bit, felt weird that I was able to discuss what was going on with him to people without breaking down and crying every single time. Because I'm explaining to somebody how my dad is dying. And that's, once again, like this is the hardest thing I've ever had to, to struggle with because as, as all young men do, 
something breaks in my house, oh, yeah, my dad knows how to fix that. Like, something breaks on my car, oh, well, my dad knows how to fix that. And just sort of everything that goes wrong, like, oh, well, I call, I, that's who I'm going to call. He knows how to fix everything. And he probably still does, and it's probably in there somewhere, but, like, he can't, he can't answer his phone anymore. Like, he, he can't function. And so I get really, I, I, I'm surprised that when I talk about him, that I don't break down to cry every time. And I think the only reason for that is that the Lord has been preparing me for years. This little trial comes along, and he shows me how to find joy in that. And then, then a, a, a slightly bigger one comes along, and he showed me how to find joy in that. And then a bigger one, and a bigger one, and a bigger one, and he shows me how to find joy in all of the things. And so even though... I'm saddened and I'm grieving that my dad is dying and that things are not going the way that I thought that they would. God has given me the strength to like not question God's love for me, God's love for my dad, that, he would, that this would happen to him at such a young age, that God's love for my mom, that she is having to struggle through this at a young age, like she was not expecting anything like this. And so this trial, which is hitting everybody in my family, this is not something that I could have tackled 10 years ago. Because God has been building it, right? Through trial after trial and the steadfastness has come. And I say that very deliberately, right? That God has been building this within me. I've made the choices to just say, yes, God, I'm gonna, I'll find the joy. I don't know where it is, but if you'll show it to me, I'll find it. And I'm going to try my best. So it's nothing that I've been doing other than just saying, yes, God, I will find the joy. Yes, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on this trial and I'm going to fight it. But this is part of what life is about, right? That, that we would be steadfast. That even though a year ago I wasn't really necessarily struggling with my dad's mortality, today I am. And I feel the same, right? I feel that my love and my, and my trust and my faith in God is as strong as it's ever been, that it hasn't wavered because this is how God works in us, right? He strengthened me over the years to be able to, to stand here and honestly tell you, I'm going to be really sad when my dad dies, and I'm going to grieve that deeply, but I'm not going to question God, and I'm going to continue to love him. The last thing here is that steadfastness then makes us perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. So how many of you guys have arrived there? Is that something you're expecting to happen in this lifetime? No, you guys don't feel complete? You see, this is a goal that we know we can't attain here on earth, and yet we're striving for it anyway. This is not an all or nothing kind of a thing. Well, if I can't get 100%, then I'm just not even going to try. No, that's not what's going on. We need to be taking steps towards this every day. You might not be lacking in nothing, but maybe if you keep trying, right, in five years or in 10 years or maybe tomorrow, you're going to only be lacking in 5% of what you need, whereas 10 years ago you were lacking in 50% of what you need, right? That's what we're doing. We're working towards this goal. And you know what? There'll be little nuggets of blessing along the way because there will be days when in the midst of a trial, somebody will come to you and say, hey, I know you're struggling. How, wh- how can I pray for you today? What's going on? And you, you can honestly stare them back in the face and say, you know what? Today's pretty good. I, I've been looking for the joy. I've been praying for it and God has been giving it to me. And even though this really horrible thing is happening to me, I'm doing really well. I don't feel like I'm lacking in anything. Now, here's the thing. The next time you see, you see them, you should ask again, right? Because 
today, they might be doing really well, but tomorrow is a whole new day, right? And there's a new struggle, and the struggle starts over. Because once again, it's not a one-and-done kind of thing. You don't get to just say, I found the joy, I've got it, here it is, it's just stuck with me all day, every day, until this thing is over. The trial continues. You continue to find the joy every day. You continue to ask your brothers to help you. You continue to meet it and not run away from it, right? It's an everyday sort of thing until it either resolves or until it's the last trial that you have to face. So we can't just ask once, right? We ask regularly. We lean on each other. And one day, right, the glory is coming. There will be a day when every day you wake up and you're lacking in nothing. And every day you will see perfection because the Lord has finally fully given you his full perfection, right? In the glory of heaven and in the new creation, there will be a day when everything will be complete. There will be no more trials. You will just be basking in the glory of God for all eternity. But today is not that day. And so I close with this challenge for you. Everything that we read in these short little verses, this is meant for each of us on an individual basis, but this is meant for you guys as a church as well. You are a shining light in this community that is fairly dark. The trials that your church is facing, you have to come together, right? You guys have to come together as one body of Christ and fight back against it. Attack it together. Don't attack each other, but come together and attack the trial, right? Attack the problem. Conquer this. Overcome whatever is going on here. Do whatever you have to do. Put your ego aside if that's a problem. Seek forgiveness if that's what you need to do. Ask for forgiveness. Do whatever you have to do and come together and fight this. Because this is more than just about you and this church. I don't know how long it's been here. But you're not fighting for the fact that the church has been here for a hundred plus years. You're fighting for the fact that you are fighting for the kingdom of God. And this church is the full of the most faithful soldiers in this town. Bar none, no questions asked. Before we came to plant this church, we went to every church in this community. And I'm not going to name names, but I heard a guy stand up in the pulpit one morning and say, you know what, at 1130 last night I thought about this for 10 minutes and let me preach it to you. That's not acceptable. This is important, and you have to handle it well, and you guys are doing it when many other churches in this town are not. And if you've never been to those churches to see what's going on, I promise you, you guys are it. You are the most faithful church in this town. This is about the kingdom of God. This is about winning the souls of your community. You have to fight together. You have to overcome whatever is going on here. It has to be done. So I'm going to keep praying for you. Every single day I'm going to keep praying that the Lord will lead you guys, will lead your elders, will lead everybody in this church to come together to fight this and to win this battle. Because there is a war outside of this building. And God is calling you as a church to fight it. To go out and slay the lie and slay unbelief and bring people to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you 
you have done an unthinkable thing. You looked Peter square in the face and you said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. And Lord, we understand that. We know that to mean that you have given your church the keys of the kingdom. You have given us a responsibility that is so bigger, so much bigger than anything we could ever do on our own. Lord, if we are not trusting in you, we don't deserve those keys. So, Lord, I ask you this morning that you would be with this church, Lord, that you would be with the leaders, that you would be with the elders, that they would be able to come together to resolve whatever, whatever struggles are going on, whatever trial the church is facing, and that everybody in this church, every member would stand behind them, would be with them, would encourage them, would be praying for them, doing everything they can to help encourage and lift them up and support them. Lord, this church is a shining light, figuratively and literally, sitting up on this hill that everyone sees when they drive into Bayfield. Lord, help to strengthen them, help them to go out and share the gospel, to be the light to this community. That it's sad to say that many other churches in this town are not taking seriously. They're pulling their punches in their pulpits. Lord, it's not okay. This church is preaching the entire counsel of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them, that they would go out into this community and continue to minister in your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.